Welcome to each of you. It's a pleasure for me to be here this morning. I haven't been with the congregation for several Sundays, so it's especially nice to be here today. We're thankful for your presence. We send out a special greeting to those that are visiting with us today. We want you to feel comfortable here, and we pray that you feel that you've been blessed by worshiping God this morning. If you have questions about things that we do here today in our worship or about things that we teach, we would be honored if you'd give us the opportunity to sit down with you individually and study from God's Word. We have a great opportunity to corporately worship the Creator of this universe, our benevolent and loving Father. We've just sang about bringing all glory, praise, and honor to God and to Jesus Christ. God has richly blessed us. He is able to do exceedingly above, abundantly above that that we might ask or think. His Son, Jesus Christ, is the greatest gift that He has given to mankind. And according to Ephesians 3, verse 21, Jesus Christ is worthy of of our praise in the church. So those of us who are part of the church, making up that blood-bought institution, as we gather together as we have this morning, we need to glorify the Son, Jesus Christ. He's worthy of that glory and that honor. God is worthy of the glory and the honor that we can bring to Him. As we join our voices in song, as we blend our minds in prayer as we focus and meditate on God's Word, as we look to the Lord's Supper, as we properly discern the Lord's body through that activity, as we purpose in our heart to be a cheerful giver to God. All of these elements of our worship should first and foremost be to bring glory to the Son and to the Father, God of heaven. We are glad for this occasion to open God's Word together. You know, from time to time we speak about our mission as a congregation. The mission that we have to restore the New Testament church. In the Scriptures, there are some 44 local congregations that are mentioned on the pages of the New Testament. We can take all of these congregations, the history of them, given in the book of Acts, And we can read the letters of instruction and admonition that are written to these churches. And we can compile a model or a pattern for the church that Christ established. We need to understand that pattern so that we can follow the Apostles' doctrine. So that we can restore the New Testament church. This morning we want to look at one congregation from that perspective. And we want to look at the characteristics of this congregation to help us to understand how we're to function as a congregation here at Northwest Church of Christ. Antioch of Syria is a prevalent congregation in the midsection of the book of Acts. We first read about it in Acts 6, but then we come to Acts 11, Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 15, We see a lot of details about this congregation 
at Antioch. And we want to look at these details and see what we can learn together this morning. As I mentioned, the first time Antioch is referenced in the New Testament is in Acts 6, verses 5 and 6. Here we are introduced to Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. You will remember that the Grecian widows were being neglected and the apostles did not want to leave the Word of God to serve tables, so they selected men to take this responsibility. And in verse 5, as we read about these men and their names, the last name given was that of Nicholas. And the Bible gives us some extra detail about Nicholas that we don't have about the other six men. It says that he was a proselyte from Antioch. So he was a Grecian. He is one that converted into the Jewish religion. And then he was in Jerusalem when the church was initiated and started. And he converted out of the Jewish faith into the Christian faith. The Bible tells us that all of these men were full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He was a very responsible person, and he is an indicator of the type of people that lived in Antioch. So as we turn over then to think about the location of Antioch and some of the details about the history, we see that it was a distance away from Jerusalem, which is on your lower right. Antioch is at the star in your middle right. We learned that as Stephen was stoned to death, the first Christian martyr, believers began to face intense persecution in Jerusalem, and they began to scatter. And they went to all different cities, and one of the cities that they went to was Antioch. Antioch is one of the largest cities at that time of the first century Roman world, accommodating a population over 100,000 people. The city was home to a wealthy and thriving Jewish community. We find that this city's location was a chief trade intersection between Egypt, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, Mesopotamia, and this made the church of Antioch a strategic hub for traveling to various places and carrying the gospel into the Mediterranean and beyond. We look at this zoomed-in slide. Again, we see Antioch as a part of Syria on the right-hand part. There is also an Antioch of Pisidia. It's in the middle section of the map toward the upper part of the map. This city and the church established there is talked about in Acts chapter 13, 14 through 50, and then in Acts 14, 21, Acts 16, 6, and then again in Acts 18, 23. So we have to be careful as we read about Antioch that we make the distinction because there were two of those. And we're talking this morning about Antioch of Syria. So let's turn to the record given in Acts 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So as Luke gives the history here, he goes back to the time that all of these 
people were scattered from Jerusalem. That's a point of reference. They first established the congregation in Jerusalem, and then they went to Samaria, and then they went to outer points. And so initially, as these people traveled to outer points, they went to Antioch, and they preached to the Jews only. But then in the next phase, the gospel was taught to the Gentiles. We read in verse 20, But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So in the lower part of this map, you see the the island of Cyprus. So people had traveled from Jerusalem to Cyprus. They had taught the gospel there. And then we're told in verse 20 here that men traveled from Cyprus to Antioch and began to preach to the Hellenists. So both the Jews and the Greeks were being taught the gospel. We remember initially that it was given to the Jews, but then in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius was converted into the church as the first Gentile Christian, and then the gospel was taken to the Gentiles as well. So it's something notable here that there were both Jews and Gentiles that were being converted into this congregation at Antioch. Verse 21 tells us that a great number believed and turned to the Lord. It's important to see that Antioch was a thriving congregation. The people that taught the gospel there, they found those hearts that would hear the gospel, and a great number of people were converted into the church, and this church began to grow. And so we move then to verse 22 through 24. Here we see that Barnabas is sent to Antioch. And the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he had came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them, all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord." So when the news reached Jerusalem about the exploding numbers of converts in this locality, the leaders of the congregation at Jerusalem decided to send Barnabas there to help with that work. Back in Acts 4, verse 36, we are introduced to Barnabas. His name was Joseph. The apostles renamed him Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas was to become an evangelist that traveled with Paul a little bit later on that we'll notice. But at this time, he comes to Antioch and he begins to work there. And he, the word encouragement is used here regarding the work that he did. And he's described as being a very good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So we noticed in verse 21 that a great many were obeying the gospel and being converted into this church. Again, just a few verses later in verse 24, the record repeats that characteristic of this church. They were being taught, they were evangelistic, the members were working in that community, and this church again was stated to be thriving. Then we learn about Saul's arrival at this place. Verses 25 and 26, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, 
And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So it's notable that Barnabas, in this work, felt, of course, guided by the Holy Spirit that Saul would be a benefit to this work. Saul and Barnabas had been together earlier. Barnabas was a witness of Saul early on as people feared him because of his background. So they knew one another. They had went separate ways. But here, Barnabas goes and finds Saul. He comes back to this city. And the two of them are working here. The Bible says they worked here for a year. Again, great many people were being taught. We see that this congregation was all about teaching. It wasn't just limited to a few people teaching, but there were many people teaching, spreading the gospel and converting people into this church. Another notable thing here in verse 26 is the fact that they were first called Christians at Antioch. Names have always been important to God. If we go back to the Old Testament, we remember that the patriarchs, once they came into a covenant relationship with God, He often changed their name to something different. There was prophecy in the Old Testament that when the New Covenant came, the Old Covenant was taken away, that the New Covenant would come with a new name. We find this in Isaiah 62 and verse 2. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness, and all kings your glory. Ye shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. Names are important to God. Names are talked about a lot in the Scriptures. We can turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, and we can read in verses 20 through 23 about the preeminence of Christ. And in that section of Christ, of of Scripture, it says that Christ would have a name far above any other name. We turn on over to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, and we find this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and in earth is named. So the church had been in existence for a period of time, the members of the church were referred to as saints at times, disciples at times, brothers and sisters at times. But now we come to Antioch and there is a name that is first used with the disciples here at Antioch. And I believe that this is the name that was prophesied of, a new name that had not been used before this time. You cannot say Christian without saying Christ. We want to wear Christ's name. We mentioned the churches, the local congregations, were referred to as the churches of Christ in Romans 16 and verse 16. All of those 44 congregations wore the name of Christ. Christ built the church. Christ died for the church. Christ is the head of the church. The church is His bride. Why wouldn't we want to wear His name? And this is the name that we find in the record. If we want to restore the New Testament church, we need to wear the same names that they wore. 
We need to be Christians, and we need to be Christians only as these brethren in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. As we conclude the reading of this chapter 11, we come to verses 27 through 30. We find here that Agabus came to this congregation. He stood up and made a prophecy of a great famine throughout the world, as is stated in verse 28. And then we find these disciples at Antioch, according to their ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. A little later on, we read the instructions of Paul to the congregations of Galatia to lay by in store upon the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2. We see that happening here at Antioch as an example of what the New Testament church did. They gave according to their ability. This relief was packaged and then it was sent to a remote location where Christians were suffering. It was sent by Paul and Barnabas, trustworthy men. These men delivered these resources to Jerusalem to the elders of that congregation, and it was distributed to those poor saints that were in need. There's a lot that we can learn about this. We read that congregations were elder-led. They were the ones that oversaw the congregation and took care of teaching and training the congregation and setting the vision for the congregation. We see here that there were many teachers in these congregations. As we look to Antioch and begin to think about its history and how it came to be, it talked about a lot of people going from different places to Antioch and teaching and preaching the gospel. We see that Paul and Barnabas are there for at least a year if not a little bit longer, take helping with this teaching and this preaching. They were multi-teacher, elder-led congregations. That applied at Jerusalem, that applied here at Antioch, and as we continue to look to examples like the congregation at Corinth, when they were instructed in how to edify the congregation, it was assumed in 1 Corinthians 14 that there were multiple teachers. They were told to speak one at a time, to speak a language that could be understood. You see, God's plan was for this process to be implemented for the benefit of the congregation and for the congregations to be able to thrive. And so we come to the end of Acts 11. We come to Acts 12, and the history record takes a left turn. It goes back. Jerusalem, And it talks about the persecution at the church at Jerusalem. It talked about some things about Peter and others at Jerusalem. But then we come to Acts 13, and we go directly back to Antioch once again. And we have a record of things that happened starting in Acts 13, verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called... Niger, Lucius of Serene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So the Holy Spirit takes the time here to list who was teaching in this congregation. There were five people. Saul and Barnabas were teaching. 
but you also find these other three men that were prophets and teachers in this setting. Again, this was not an anomaly. We see that this was the condition of the congregation or the processes of many of the congregations that we read about in the New Testament. Let's fast forward about three years to Acts 15, verse 35, and we're going to read another statement about this same congregation. It says, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. By the time Saul and Barnabas left, there were three teachers. Three years later, there are many others that are teaching. As Paul and Barnabas returned there and stayed for a period of time to assist the congregation. So we see that this wasn't an anomaly. This was the way that these New Testament congregations operated. In Acts 13 verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. One of the benefits of having multiple teachers and leaders in the congregation, they could send others out. Paul and Barnabas here are ordained to begin doing the work of evangelists, and they are sent out from this congregation. And from verse 3 forward, they begin to visit many different churches in, in that whole area and to establish those churches to set those churches in order. This would not have been possible if they had to stay at Antioch and take care of the edification, but there were multiple teachers that took care of that. These men were guided by the Holy Spirit to be separated, to be ordained. There was fasting and prayer. There was an ordination that, that officially sent them, and they went about their work. So here is the first missionary journey of Saul and Barnabas. You know, Saul later became Paul. I believe it's Acts 13 verse 9 when Saul was first called Paul. And I wondered if there was some kind of significance when his name changed, but it seems that his name was interchangeable. Saul was a Hebrew or Jewish name. Paul was the Roman name. And he began to be called Paul prevalently, prevalently after Acts 13 and verse 9. So he and, and Barnabas left out, and you see that they went to Cilicia, they sailed to Cyprus, then they went back up into the mainland and began to circulate there, establishing all of these congregations. It is estimated that this took about 10 months of time to make this trip, and then we find that they sailed back to Antioch of Syria. Why did they return back to where they came from? I believe we see a pattern here in Scripture that these men were ordained by that congregation. They went out and did this work, and then they came back and they reported about this work to the brethren. And we read that very thing as we see from Acts 14, verses 26 and 27. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. 
Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Not only did Paul and Barnabas report report back to Antioch, but we see shortly after they came back to Antioch that they were called to Jerusalem. So in Acts 15, we read that they started this journey to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way. They stopped at Phoenicia and Samaria. And what did they do at these locations? In these congregations, it says, they described the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. They brought the communication of the work that God was doing through them and shared it with these other members of the congregation. And this brought great joy to them. We need to have a broad perspective of the kingdom of God. It's not just about what happens in the local setting. Certainly what happens here is very important, but it's also about what is going on in other places. And when we hear of others being converted to Christ, then that should bring great joy to us, just as it did these brethren in Phoenicia and Samaria. We're told there that they went to Jerusalem, and again, Paul and Barnabas were involved in discussions with the brethren back at Jerusalem, and one of the things that they did was tell the brethren in Jerusalem the things that had been happening with their evangelistic efforts. We read in Acts 15, verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Saul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. We see then the precedent set for evangelistic reports to be given in congregations of the church. They go back to Antioch, and there is a second missionary journey that is launched from Antioch. We can read about that in Acts 15 and verse 36. So this work continued going forward. We're going to end our thoughts about this example by looking at these points of restoration that we've learned so far through our lesson this morning. There was zealous teaching and preaching of the gospel to everyone in the community of Antioch. They brought unity in diverse cultures. We learned there was Jews and Gentiles both being converted into the church at Antioch. A great difference in backgrounds and religions and cultures. And yet, Barnabas the encourager and Saul the evangelist and all the other people that were teaching there they brought unity to those people and they sat down together in the body of Christ. Right here in Plainview, we have people of different cultures and different backgrounds and different races. Those things should not keep us, if we're operating as a restored New Testament church, those things should not keep us from having unity and thriving and bringing people in where they can grow closer and closer to God in their Christian walk. We remember number three, they wore the name of Christ only. Number four, they developed many teachers. Teachers become leaders. They developed many leaders for the congregation. Number six, they brought opportunity to send out evangelists. 
They were training and developing men who were able to teach the gospel of Christ. These men were doing that locally. They were doing it with one another. They were doing it in the community. And so when the time and opportunity came, these men were able to leave and do it in other places. And then number seven, there were reports given to the congregation about the success of the gospel in many other places.